also happy anniversary to my incredible wife of 12 years today. She's downstairs with one of the kids right now, but uh, hey, uh, <clears throat> if you are newer with us here at North Sub, welcome. One thing you'll find true about us is that in general, we are much more concerned with addressing the sin problems in here, in here, than we are with addressing the sin problems out there, outside these walls. Uh, now that takes work. It doesn't naturally. It doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. Um, like we'd all like to think that the biggest sin problems are the ones outside of us, right? Naturally speaking, we are more concerned about what's being taught in the public schools than we are about what we were teaching our kids when we snapped at them when we were getting out the door to church this morning. Right? Naturally speaking, we are more concerned about our boss's lack of affirmation than we are with our own lack of gratitude for the good gift of a job. Right? In other words, it's more natural for us to think my biggest problem is my circumstances than it is for us to think my biggest problem is my sin. But at North Sub, as Pastor Sean articulated so well a couple months ago, we are committed to looking first and foremost at what sin exists in here. Like the man Jesus talks about who beats his chest before God. Remember that guy? They're saying, I don't know what kind of sin all these other people out there have, but have mercy on me because I know that I am a sinner. We're aiming like that to be a family of Jesus followers who are more appalled by the sin in our own hearts than we are by the sin in the world out there. Right? Now, that said, there are problems in the world out there. There are pressures being exerted on us from outside of us. And I'm quite aware that some of you come here feeling those external pressures acutely, even today. If that's you, I believe the Lord has a word for you in the psalm that we're about to look at. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. It's the year, let's say, 2008. As a Christian, you find yourself holding some beliefs that are becoming increasingly unpopular in your social circles. If you're honest, you're starting to get just a little nervous about the possibility of being ostracized for those beliefs. But then someone advises you, hey, listen, <clears throat> people aren't bothered by Christian beliefs. They're bothered by the way Christians present our beliefs. If you'll just tell people that you disagree with that you love them, Instead of being angry and hateful toward them, they won't mind that you hold different beliefs than them. So, 2008 again, you, you redouble your efforts to do just that, right? You are bound and determined that you are not going to be a Westboro Baptist type of Christian. You know that, that, that church sect cult that I'm talking about, the crazy family that holds up the signs about all the, God, the people that God supposedly hates, right? That's not going to be you. You start... Standing up for gay people when jokes are told about them, even when they're not around. 
right? You teach your kids never to allow their transgender peers to get bullied. You consistently love on your unbelieving neighbors who are a little rough around the edges without passing judgment on their language or habits. Now it's the year 2021. And you live that way consistently for over a decade. You're not looking for a fight. You don't want to be judgy. You know deeply, you know it, that you're a sinner too. You've done your best not to put any unnecessary obstacles between anyone and Christ. But the spirit of the age isn't what it was in 2008. Your cousin confronts you, saying she's planning to avoid all family gatherings where you will be present because she finds the beliefs you hold to be inherently hateful, no matter how you present them or whether you present them. Then your longtime friend cuts you off for similar reasons, but in his case, you only find out that you're cut off because he broadcasted it on social media. Some of the people that you love deeply now feel so deeply wounded by the very existence of someone in their life who holds the beliefs you hold. Maybe about eternal punishment or about human sexuality or about how many different ways there are or aren't to get to God. That it doesn't seem to matter all that much anymore that you believe yourself to be a loving person who seeks peace. To them, the idea of living at peace with you feels to them like it would be an unacceptable betrayal of everything they stand for. Some of you don't have to work all that hard to imagine that scenario because it's your reality. I don't know, students, I wonder if any of you felt just a little extra bit of relief at the end of this school year because every day at school was starting to feel just a little bit like what I just described. The scenario I just laid out, this person who desires peace but finds herself surrounded by people who are ready to fight, that seems to be a little like the situation faced by the psalmist who composed our scripture text today. Would you open with me to Psalm 120? If you want to be there following along with us, in a Bible or Bible app. Psalm 120 is the first of 15 consecutive psalms, all of which start out with this little prescript. Psalm 120 or 121, 122, a psalm of ascent. A psalm of ascent. The scholarly consensus at this point is that Psalms 120 to 134 are songs that God's people could sing on their three times a year pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the major feasts. And they're called songs of ascent because... In the Jewish mind, no matter where in the world you're coming from, you go up to Jerusalem because that's the place where God made his home among his people. Can you imagine what those journeys must have been like? Just picture yourself for a moment, leaving home with hundreds of others, thousands of others joining you along the roads to journey to the place where God was present in glory. Our Lord Jesus went on that journey many times and almost certainly sung Psalm 120 and the other Psalms of Ascent with aunts and uncles and cousins on his way. And there's a sense in which we're on a similar journey, are we not? We're born into this world, but then our Lord calls us to be sojourners who trek slowly but surely toward the heavenly Jerusalem that awaits us, Zion, where we will one day feast. Right? It's for that reason that we've titled our sermon series Songs for the Journey. 
think you'll find that the Psalms in this series invite us into a wide range of experiences and emotions that are common to all of us pilgrims trying to find our way. One of those experiences, the one most directly addressed in Psalm 120, is the one of the person who wants peace, but who nevertheless finds himself the target of hostile people in the place where he lives. So this first Psalm in our series is uh, one of personal pain. You may find that it particularly resounds with you if you're presently experiencing any sense of alienation in the place you call your earthly home. For the psalmist, leaving a hostile home to make the journey toward Jerusalem provides an opportunity to cry out to the Lord for relief. And I pray this morning's service might be the same for someone here. Survey the situation with me. Uh, just take like a broad overview look at the psalm with me, Psalm 120. Here's what's going on in Psalm 120 at a very high level. The psalmist is crying out for deliverance. See that in verse 2. Deliverance from what? Well, lies and deceit. That raises the question, whose lies and deceit? Right? Deliverance from his own lies and deceit? Like, Lord, I don't want to lie and deceive anymore. Or from others' lies and deceit. And we see, as we work our way through, we see second-person language, you, you, you. And then in verse 7, it's confirmed that it's others' lies and deceit that is the cause for concern in this particular case. So, why are these people lying and deceiving? It seems, according to verses 6 and 7, that they hate peace. They want war. Does the psalmist want war? No. He finds himself a victim of it. He says, I am for peace. So what does he say that these hostile, what does he believe that these hostile people deserve? He believes that they deserve justice from God, going back to verses 3 and 4. A warrior's sharp arrows, glowing coals of the broom tree. So maybe you can see why I'm saying this is a song written by a believer in the one true God as he leaves behind his hostile neighbors in hopes of finding peace by way of this journey to the place where God dwells. Uh, Dorothy, would you come up and read the psalm? I, you should, I was supposed to have you do this before I came up, but this is actually, now that it's been set up, it's going to be good for you to read it so we can soak in it, all of it together. Thank you. Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Thank you. As we immerse ourselves in that text, as just read, uh, we're going to see that it breaks down this way. There's a request, a curse, and a lament. A request, a curse, and a lament. Let's start with the request in verses 1 and 2. As we just saw, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. When embattled, our impulse is often to do, to plan, to scheme. We call a brainstorming meeting. We plot a counterattack. For me, I pull out my phone, uh, come up and pull up a new note on my phone and start outlining a way out. 
just how I think. But these opening verses are exhibit A of the fact that the biblical response when embattled is not to do, but rather to pray. It's not to do, but rather to pray. That's what the psalmist does here in his distress. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Verse 2, he's lifting up this prayer on the journey to Jerusalem. A journey that itself is spatially what prayer is verbally, as James Mays points out. Both the physical journey and the verbal prayer are examples of moving toward God in dependence on God. So, think about what caused the distress that you came here with today. Think about that for a moment. The distress that you came here with today, what's the cause of that distress? And now think back to when that distress began. Where did you turn when you first experienced that source of distress? Did you make a plan? Did you immediately seek out advice? How many other actions did you take before you went to the Lord in prayer? Now maybe you say, well, if I had seen God answer prayer in the past, I might go to him first, but anytime I've prayed, it just seems like I might as well have been talking to the ceiling. Is that anybody? No, that's been me at plenty of times. What does the psalmist know that we don't, right? What makes him convinced that the first and most important thing to do in his distress is to pray? I think we get a clue in verse 1. Did you notice that? Before the request, here's what he says. In my distress, I called to the Lord... And he answered me. Now, commentators are divided on this. This is either, it's one of two things. Either the psalmist is remembering in the past, God has answered my other requests, so I'm choosing to trust him again with this request in verse 2. Or, this is just a psalmist saying, I am so confident that God is going to answer me that I'm choosing already to speak in the past tense about him answering the request I'm about to make. That's how much of a done deal I believe this to be. Whatever the case is, whether it's the first or second one, God has apparently shown this psalmist something that has instilled incredible confidence. We don't know what scriptures the psalmist was reflecting on or what experiences the psalmist may have had that contributed to his confidence, but we know this. And it's actually staggering for me to, to reflect on this. Where we stand, you and I, where we stand now on this side of Jesus there's a sense in which even the newest baby Christian who's here this morning can see who God is with greater clarity than even this divinely inspired psalmist could. Why do I say that? How is that possible? Because nowhere did God show his character more clearly than he did at the cross. Perfect justice meeting perfect mercy. The supreme display of holiness meeting the supreme display of love. He had every reason to leave us wallowing in the filth of our sin until sin's poison dragged us down to the grave, but instead he let the grave swallow him so that it would lose its power to swallow us. Instead of shrinking back from our filth, he stepped into our filth and took it on himself in order that you and I could be washed clean. Our cries for mercy were heard and answered on that tree when Jesus said those three words, it is finished. When you've got a God who will go to those lengths for you and 
He's actively inviting you to bring all your distress to him, to lift it off your back and throw it onto his. Why do we insist on trying to scheme our way out of our distressing situations on the basis of our own cleverness? Unfortunately, I think I know why I do. At least one reason I do. It's because how would my life have meaning if I didn't? If I took everything to God instead of exercising my own creative genius to solve at least some of my problems, what value would my life have? What would make me special or, or different or unique? Of course, the answer to that, the right answer to that, is that my life would have much value. It just wouldn't be the sort of fickle value that comes from being an especially skilled problem solver, but rather the sort of lasting value that comes from being a dearly loved child of the only one in the universe so powerful that he literally speaks things into being. I have a lot of growing to do in this area of jumping to prayer first. Maybe you do too. Hence, our summer emphasis on prayer here at North Sub this summer. Take a look at what we send out tomorrow in that email for some ideas of how you might join us in doubling down on our commitment to prayer this summer. If you don't get those emails, please do reach out to the church office because you'll want to follow along with us in that. <clears throat> now, the psalmist is about to take us from a request to a curse. Uh, why is that? Let's take a look. Uh, verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? Speaking to the person who's done wrong, or the people who have done wrong. And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. In a cultural moment like ours, in which so many professing Christians seem to feel a strong need to take revenge when wronged, Revenge through boycotts or revenge through nasty comments on the internet or even revenge through trespassing and violence. I just want to make one major observation from verses 3 and 4. The psalmist is not taking revenge for himself. Instead, he's doing two things. One, he's laying out before the Lord the wrong that has been done to him. And two, he's telling his adversaries, you have put yourself in the crosshairs of God's justice. In other words, he believes God is going to deal with these folks. And he reasons, wouldn't it be just on God's part to allow the warlike to be subjected to war? So he utters this oath formula that basically says, let those who speak violent words experience the violence that they spoke over me, right? A warrior's sharp arrows, glowing coals of the broom tree. That's what shall be given to you, verses 3 and 4. Arrows from a bow, coals from a fire. That's the sort of thing that you tried to inflict on me verbally. He says, so don't be surprised when God inflicts exactly those things on you. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, a curse like that, it's a little uncomfortable to read. Right? Like, sure, he's, he's not taking revenge himself, but is it really even Christ-like to even speak this way to those who have wronged us? Consider this, though. If a friend or even an enemy is unknowingly sprinting through the fog straight toward the edge of a cliff. Isn't it the most loving thing to warn them about what's in store for them through the fog? It's the same way when we let our friends or even our adversaries know what's in store for them, as the psalmist does here. You never know. Hearing the warning could cause them to stop and turn a different way. 
Now, it might be painful for them to hear the warning. They might not like it. But here's how Eugene Peterson explains it while reflecting on these verses. God's arrows are judgments aimed at provoking repentance. Repentance is turning from sin to God. The pain of judgment called down against evildoers could turn them also from their deceitful and violent ways to join our pilgrim, the author of this psalm, on the way of peace. Any hurt is worth it that puts us on the path of peace, setting us free for the pursuit in Christ of eternal life. I was convicted this week reflecting on this psalm and and this quote in particular. I don't really warn people of God's judgment when they mistreat me. That's so cringy, isn't it, that you would warn someone of God's judgment today? But if this is true about the function of warnings of judgment, and I believe that it is, then am I selfishly robbing people of the grace that they could have found in a warning, the painful grace that God might have used to set them on the path of peace? I need to do more work and reflection on that, but here's the thing. If the author of this psalm had taken vengeance into his own hands, he would be no better than his adversaries, no less in danger of God's fiery arrows. So verses 3 and 4 then ought to prompt self-examination for all of us, Christian or not, if you've been that person who has used your words, including these words, and including these words, used your words to hurt people, no matter how deserving of hurt you think your opponents are, the call here is to turn from your verbally violent ways before it's too late. Performative outrage is not the way of Christ. Vengeance is not ours to take. It belongs to the Lord. The way of Christ is charity. It's grace. It's kindness, even toward our enemies, even as we warn those who have wronged us about the judgment that awaits them if they don't turn from their sin. God's people are people of peace. That brings us to our final section, lament. Verses 5 through 7. Follow along with me. Woe to me that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak... They're for war. This is a textbook scriptural example of a lament. To lament is to give expression to pain and sorrow and hopes of finding healing. The, con- the content of this particular lament is basically, my neighbors hate peace. I'm for peace. My neighbors hate it. Now we think of peace sometimes as the absence of hostility, maybe. So we might picture here somebody in this psalmist who's just kind of tiptoeing around who's trying not to rock the boat, trying not to upset anybody, but that's not actually what peace is in the Psalms, is it? Here's a good definition of the shalom that's spoken of here. It's the hopefulness and wholesomeness of life when living is knit into the fabric of relatedness to God and to others and to the world. It is the at-oneness that makes for goodness. That's... Shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken, a a nicely woven fabric. That's the kind of peace spoken of in the Psalms. The kind of peace that this psalmist's neighbors hate. They're tearing at the fabric while he's trying to be a mender of the fabric. The psalmist talks about his sojourning in Meshach. 
and dwelling in the tents of Kedar because those were two far-off places that are known for being warlike at the time. Right? Now, what we don't know is where the psalmist is actually living, the psalmist who wrote this. Meshech and Kedar are very far from each other, so he's not living in both. Maybe he's in exile in a place that's like Meshech and Kedar, or he could be a resident of Israel who is saying it's become so contentious here, it's like I've been exiled to Meshech or Kedar. It's not certain, but I think actually that the ambiguity of whether this psalmist is actually in Israel among God's people or in exile among unbelievers provides a parallel for us. Ready for the parallel? Here it is. At times, the haters of peace who come after us will be non-Christians. It's not that that doesn't hurt, but on some level, we expect it, right? Meshik is going to Meshik. But when the attacks come from professing Christians, when the family of faith starts to feel like Kedar, it's a different kind of pain. Praise God that in his providence, he provided us with this psalm that gives voice to any experience in which we find ourselves sojourning in a place where those around us, whether believers or unbelievers, hate peace. So, with the contrast here in this psalm between people of peace and people who hate peace, we have a chance to locate ourselves in this psalm. Are we a people of shalom, is the question. In our neighborhoods, are you and I known as menders of the fabric of right relatedness between people and God, menders of the fabric of right relatedness between people and each other, people in creation? And maybe you are. Maybe you are a person committed to shalom. But after years of watching your diligent work of fabric mending being quickly and repeatedly undone by people who seem to want nothing more than to rip away at the fabric, you've now reached a point in which you find yourself crying out to God, God, I've spent enough time here. Maybe like verse 6 in the psalmist, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace, God. You know, that's actually a good start if you're in that place this morning. Eugene Peterson points out, it's unlikely we'll ever begin the journey toward the heavenly Jerusalem in earnest until we've become discontent with our earthly existence. Right? Here's how he says it. It's, it's too good of a quote not to read in full. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice or Another scientific breakthrough might save the environment or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility. We are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Psalm 120 is the song of such a person, sick with the lies, crippled with the hate, a person doubled up in pain over what is going on in the world. But it's not a mere outcry. It is pain that penetrates through despair and stimulates a new beginning, a journey to God that becomes a life of peace. Maybe for somebody here today, this very morning will be the first step in a summer-long journey in which God uses these psalms of ascent to disabuse you of your hope that this world is ever going to do for you what you hoped it would do for you. 
I'm praying that God uses this summer's journey to make and remake many of us into persons of peace, persons whose ultimate hope is set only on that heavenly city. So our big idea, as we seek peace, and those first four words are crucial, because too often professing Christians are the most outraged members of our outraged culture. Professing Christians are the canceliest participants in today's cancel culture. Too often. But once we've confessed that, once we've turned away from our hostile ways and we're seeking peace, we still may find ourselves recipients of undeserved hostility. So the big idea, as we seek peace, let's cry out to the Lord, as the psalmist does here, for deliverance from those who are hostile. As we seek peace, let's cry out to the Lord for deliverance from those who are hostile. If you're here this morning, or if you stumbled uh, across this on the internet, and you aren't a Christian, and you've maybe had some bad experiences with Christians, I want to say this. I'm sorry for the ways in which I have not acted always like a lover of peace. Sorry for the ways that we have not always acted like lovers of peace, for the ways Christians in general have not always acted like lovers of peace. We identify as Christians not because we think we're especially good, but because we've discovered that we're actually quite bad. And though God is working in us to make us more like him, we confess that we are far from meeting his standard, and you've seen that in us. So we want to ask your forgiveness for ways that we've wronged you. And we want to invite you to join us, actually, in stumbling along this path together toward the heavenly city to come, the place where everything sad will come untrue. Trekking arm in arm with our eyes fixed on the one who died in our place. For those here this morning who are Christians, it seems overwhelmingly likely that there are difficult days ahead of us. If any of us were attempting to be people of peace in hopes that our peaceableness would make us respectable, we now have a chance to prove that we're still committed to being people of peace, even when many are not going to consider us respectable. The reality is that if you and I don't want to suffer under unfair attacks like this psalmist was suffering under, there are only two ways out. Compromise or retaliate? Church family, we must not do either of those. Instead of compromising what we believe in an attempt to regain respectability we've lost, instead of retaliating in an attempt to regain power we've lost, let's place it before the Lord as if it's written on a scroll that we're laying out before him on the floor saying, Lord, do you see what's being said about us? Do you see what's being done to us? Remember when Hezekiah did that in the Old Testament? Just laid it out before God. Said, God, I think you're going to want to address this. As we cry out together, as we await God's response, let's lock arms in our willingness to suffer ridicule and shame for the name of Christ, the true and perfect man of peace. And let's not neglect coming together like this week after week. Praying, Lord, deliver us from those who are hostile to us. Let's pray. 
do pray that, Lord. Pray for deliverance. We pray it on the basis of who you are. As a God who is good, righteous, holy. A God who's strong and powerful. Who doesn't ignore the cries of the oppressed. We also ask it on the basis of what you've done. As you've delivered your people time and time again over the centuries and most supremely at the cross when you delivered us once and for all from our greatest enemy, sin and death. Lord, we ask that you would knit us together as a church family in that shalom and that we'd be a people who'd leave these doors being agents of shalom in the communities to which you've called us to live. And when we're treated with hostility, nevertheless, help us to cry out to you instead of taking revenge or instead of compromising as we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor. Over the next couple months through this series, we're going to add a few elements to help us reflect, to help us to pray, um, and to help us to take home the message that is happening here on Sunday. Um, if you could please stand as we go into a time of confession and read the words in yellow with me on the screen. Father, we confess that all too often we listen to the lies this world has to offer. Too often our ears are turned into hostility, strife, that ignore your word. We repent and turn to you, the source of truth in our lives. Forgive us for taking promises and vows lightly. Forgive us when we believe hollow words when we forget your word and promises. Teach us to further abide in you always, to choose a life of peace and righteousness in the midst of lies and violence. Teach us, O Lord, to be a pilgrimage people set apart for your glory. Let's take a moment to pause and reflect on those words.